paper copy of my message this morning. That's because my tablet took an hour and a half to reset this morning, so we could have really had a long message. Welcome to everyone. My name's Steve, if you haven't met me before. We are working our way through the book of 1 John. And before we get started into our passage, I want to tell you a little story. The house that I grew up in had a sizable veggie patch in the backyard. I can remember lots of things growing in that veggie patch. We had, you know, beans and silver beet and things like tomatoes and pumpkins that grew everywhere. We had zucchinis that were as, you know, big enough to use as clubs. But for little boys aged two and three, all you really need to make the most use of a veggie patch is a hose and a shovel. So, a clean life. I'd like to think that I'm the good-looking one on the, your, le, your left. I'd like to think that in the 38-odd years that have passed since that photo was taken, Jono and I have matured a little bit. But the photographic evidence I have from my own family is that there is a genetic kind of trait that passes down through the generations, okay? I've got kids who love to get in the mud. I imagine that sometime after that photo was taken, perhaps not very long after that photo was taken, my parents asked that perennial question that many parents ask, how do we get them clean? How do we keep them clean? If you walk through your uh, nearest supermarket, I guarantee there is an aisle that's entirely devoted to getting things clean. If you go and visit your local um, massive um, hardware store, I guarantee there'll be more than one aisle that's devoted to keeping things clean. We are all too aware of just how quickly things get dirty and how we need to clean them. And so chances are you've got a cupboard that's full of cleaning products or cleaning equipment. Chances are you spent a good portion of yesterday doing some cleaning. We do things to remove the need for cleaning. We try and make changes or apply products to make cleaning easier, don't we? You can lay carpet that is resistant to stains. Remember the old Pro Heart in the spaghetti bolognese ads? We can put paint on the walls that helps crayons wipe off quickly. We can have streak-free window wash. That's a great one, actually. I really like the streak-free window wash. But it's not just our homes that get this attention, is it? It's our bodies as well. Think of how many products you can use to clean your face. What about your teeth? We have toothpaste that not only cleans your teeth, but keeps it, keeps it uh, fresh from bacteria for up to 12 hours. We're always looking to get clean and stay clean. But the challenge of getting clean and staying clean is not just limited to our physical environment, is it? It's also something we wrestle with in a spiritual sense. How do we get clean? How do we have a clean life? This morning we're continuing our series in the book of John and it's the series we've entitled Life to the Full. You might remember uh, last week as we worked our way through chapter 1 that we talked about how God, uh, with fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus, enabled by the Holy Spirit, produces a joyful life, a clean life, a discerning life and a confident life. And this morning we're looking at the second one, a clean life. This second chapter of John, John's letter, first letter, is a wonderful reminder and, in, and an encouragement of how we can have a clean life. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, this is your word and we want to be receptive to it. I 
pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I said last week, uh, we were working through chapter 1, and we were looking at those first uh, four verses where John was proclaiming this message, this message of the word of life, and that's Jesus, Jesus who is eternal but who stepped into time and who appeared. And John is proclaiming that message with a purpose. That purpose was so that we could have fellowship with him and with one another and so that our joy would be complete. Do you remember that? And then uh, in the second half of chapter 1, we looked at how uh, we looked at who it is that we're in fellowship with, with God who is light, and that's been a recurring theme that's come up even this morning. And uh, in even our call to worship, Psalm uh, 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. But then we also uh, looked at how we can tell if we are in fellowship with God. True fellowship with God means walking in the light. Now, as we looked at those, um, the second half of chapter 1, you might remember I said that it's actually the, the start of a series of, of a line of argument that John runs through into chapter 2, which builds like a spiral staircase. This week we're in chapter 2, and so we're going to continue kind of up that staircase, and we'll see how uh, fellowship with God, uh, looking at how we have fellowship with God, and how that produces a clean life. So let's read from verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This chapter also starts with a purpose statement, just like we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, John wrote, so that we'd have fellowship. And here he writes, so that you'll not sin. Remember last week we saw all those ifs, if, uh, those, that, that those ifs were to test the truthfulness or the accuracy of our claim to be having fellowship with God. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to uh, cleanse us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so John now says, I write this to you so that you won't sin. But of course, John knows, and we've all experienced, that we sin. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, the sin that so easily entangles, some translations, the sin that so easily entangles, like vines that are tripping us up. We may aim to be clean, but our experience is that we start filthy and we regularly return to that mud pit and the veggie patch. In the face of that dilemma, though, we have one of the most fantastic truths you can know. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's perfect. He's the righteous one. And he's our advocate. He comes alongside us. He represents us. He intercedes for us. He advocates on our behalf to the Father. What a reassurance that you're not self-represented. You're not doing this on your own. In fact, doing this on your own is what you got, got, got us all into trouble in the first place, isn't it? We're not on our own. In the midst of our sin, when we are completely unworthy, Christ has come alongside us and he advocates for us. He is our righteous advocate. Jesus is able to advocate on our behalf because, see in verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now the Greek word for atoning sacrifice is a word which even in the Bible is not used very often. It has quite a specific meaning. 
Some translations uh, use the word propitiation. It's an older word. If you've got an ESV, it'll have that. If you're using King James, it has the word propitiation. It's not a word that comes up very often in normal kind of common parlance, is it? To propitiate someone means to appease or pacify their anger. And in the Bible, it means that God's wrath is redirected away from sinful humanity and toward a sacrificial victim. Sometimes we might feel a little bit you know, uncomfortable, maybe, talking about God like that. Maybe a little bit reluctant to talk about his, his wrath. After all, we read last week, God is light. Get to chapter 4, verse uh, 10, 16, sorry, and we read God is love. We don't like to think about God's wrath or having to uh, have his wrath turned away. It's not very comfortable, it's not very fashionable, it's not very you know, pleasant to talk about. How does God's wrath, and in particular his wrath being redirected away from us, fit in here? Well, we're going to see that God's wrath is it's directed at sin and evil. It's not like our anger. That his atoning sacrifice, this atoning sacrifice of Jesus, is an expression of God's love. And it is the means by which we are brought into relationship, into fellowship with God. It's, the, it's how we're made clean. So let's, let's flesh out each of these statements. First, God's wrath is not like our anger. We need to kind of disconnect our thoughts about um, the thoughts that we have about God's wrath and our anger. Because we have lots of experiences of getting angry. angry. We get angry very easily. We're easily offended. But God's not like that. His wrath's not like that. His wrath is his holy and just attitude and action in the face of sin and evil. John Stock puts it this way. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger, things like injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. God's wrath is his holy and just actions and attitude in relation to sin and evil. The devastation that sin causes, the separation that sin causes. Sin ruins everything, doesn't it? That's our experience. And that's why God's wrath is directed at it, because he's holy and just. And when we sin, we rightly deserve to be the recipients of that wrath. But secondly, this, this propitiation, this atoning sacrifice, is an expression of God's love. Far from being something that we might feel uncomfortable about, it's actually something to celebrate. It's a huge encouragement to know that this is an expression of God's love. There's one other place in 1 John where we read about this word propitiation. That's in chapter 4, verse 10. And it's directly connected with God's love and our sin. Let's read that verse. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Same word, propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the ultimate demonstration of his love. This is love. He sent his only son as an atoning sacrifice. And thirdly, this atoning sacrifice is the means of, it's what brings about our, our justification and our redemption. It's what, to use the words we looked at last week, allows us to have fellowship with God. 
God's wrath for sin and evil is turned away from us, the, recipient, the deserving recipients, and it's redirected towards Jesus. One of the other places in the New Testament where this word propitiation pops up is in Romans chapter 3. And it's helpful to read that verse and see how it fits with what John's saying here in his letter. In fact, let's go back. It's Romans chapter 3 verse 25, but we'll go back two verses to Romans 3.23 to get the context. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've heard that one lots of times. That's a statement about our position. We're all sinners. Verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's our new standing. Justified. Redeemed. It came about by Jesus Christ. It came about as a result of what he did. And when we get to verse 25, which is where we get the word uh, propitiation again, we read, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's the sacrifice. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Sin had occurred. We saw that in verse 23. It was deserving of his wrath. His wrath was present, but the expression of it had been delayed. And Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. God's wrath was redirected towards Jesus instead of us. And as a result, verse 24, we are, freely, we are justified freely by his grace. God's wrath is directed at sin and evil. But Jesus' atoning sacrifice redirected that towards himself. And so we are brought into relationship with God. It ties back to what we looked at last week in um, chapter 1, verse 7, where we saw that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. It's his atoning sacrifice which enables that to be wiped away. That is an amazing truth, isn't it? Isn't that incredible? If anyone does sin, and which we all do, we have an advocate, and our advocate is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The one who is advocating on your behalf when you sin, when you're caught up in that sin, tripped up by those vines that so easily entangle and ensnare us, the one who advocates on your behalf is the one who in himself has redirected the wrath of God. The righteous one. That's what enables us to have a clean life. That's the answer to the question, how do we get clean? God's wrath has been turned away from me. And not only for my sins, not only for your sins, but also, look at the end of verse 2, for the sins of the whole world. Now what does that mean? We've got to be careful here, because it doesn't mean there's universal forgiveness. It's not like everybody just gets forgiven. Jesus' death was sufficient for everyone. Absolutely sufficient for everyone. But it's effective for some. Not everyone chooses to accept the sacrifice. Look back at the way Paul expressed it in Romans chapter 3, 25. God presented Christ as an atonement, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The sacrifice is sufficient, but the reception of that is dependent on faith. If I go back to the illustration I gave last week about... Um, antibiotics and tonsillitis. Now the analogy is not perfect, right? Because I know there is viral tonsillitis. Dave, don't even get started with me. I know that some bacteria are immune to antibiotics. It's an, an illustration, you know, 
it has its limitations. But if we're all here this morning, and by some incredible misfortune, which we don't even want to think about, we all end up with tonsillitis at the same time. We all catch it and we go and see our friendly GPs who give us a prescription for those antibiotics. The antibiotics are sufficient for all of us, but they're only effective to those of us who take them. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. His propitiation is sufficient, but it needs to be received by faith. So let me ask you, have you received it? We can have a clean life because when we sin, Jesus advocates for us. He himself was the sacrifice that propitiates God's wrath, that takes it away, that atones for it. It was redirected to him and as a result, we stand forgiven. But if we go back to what John said at the start of our chapter, we saw he says that he writes this so that we will not sin. We have fellowship with the Father because of Jesus and his sacrifice. And it produces, or it's to, it is to produce, a clean life. It impacts, it affects the way we live. The rest of the verses that we'll look at this morning in verses 3 to 17 are the outworking of that. So in verses 1 and 2, they answer the question, how do we get clean? Verses 3 to 17, they answer the question, how do we stay clean? What does a clean life look like? And now, um, as we cover these verses, we'll see that a clean life is characterised by obedience. That's something that's already come up as we've talked this morning. By love for each other. By an assurance of our identity. And by a love for God's will, not a love for the world. So, let's read on from verse 3 to 6. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. A clean life is characterised by Obedience. We know we've come to uh, know him if we, verse 3, keep his commands. One of the ways you can be reassured that you know God is whether you can assess, I say I know him, am I doing what he says? If you are, you know him. To use that um, analogy of the spiral staircase, this is an idea that John comes back to time and again in his letter. In chapter 3, verse 24, we read, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he and then. That's a, a statement about our obedience and fellowship. And this is how we know that he lives, us, lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. We're reassured by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who changes our heart to want to do what God commands and we see something similar in chapter 5, verse 2. It's a bit further up this staircase. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. A clean life is characterised by obedience. What's more, as we saw in verse, chapter 5, verse 2 there, it, it also has this relational aspect to it. it. It's how we engage with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it leads neatly into what we'll see in verses 9 to 11 in a moment. But before we get there, let me ask you, is your life characterised by obedience? 
is obedience the pattern or the exception? If you're here this morning and you claim um, to live in him, in Jesus, do you live as Jesus did? Obedience is usually costly, isn't it? Obedience is uncomfortable because we like to do things our own way. But are we keeping his commands? That's what John's asking us to check. As we read on, though, from verse 7, we see that a clean life is also characterized by love for one another. Let's read from verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet, I am writing a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. There's an echo here of what Jesus said to his disciples in the Last Supper in John chapter 13, 34, 35. He said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. On one hand, it's not new because the Old Testament had said you should love your neighbour. But on the other hand, it is new because it finds its ultimate expression, this fuller expression in the love that Jesus demonstrated for us in which he's called, he demonstrated it for us, um, towards us, and he wants us to embody it among each other. Like those if statements that we saw at the end of chapter 1 last week, these verses challenge, to, uh, challenge us to assess whether what we say and what we claim about walking in the light is matched by how we treat each other, how we love each other in practice. And verses 9 and 11 spell this out a bit more detailed. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Of course, how can we have fellowship um, if we are out of fellowship with each other? Verse 10, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. There's a consistency and authenticity about the way in which we relate to each other. Verse 11, but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. There's no place for a lack of love if we are to have a clean life. We cannot have a clean life and not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of what you say, does the way you live in practice demonstrate that love for each other? To adopt Paul's language from Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to looking to the interests of others. That's how we're to love each other. So a clean life, it's characterised by obedience. It's characterised by love for each other. It's also characterised by an assurance of our identity. In verses 12 to 14, John writes, he writes with an interesting um, style. He writes in a poetic style. I've put it all in a slab of text here. But if you're looking in your Bible or on your paper Bible or on your phone, it's probably laid out differently by the publishers or by the printers. He writes almost like a kind of poetry. And in these verses, he says repeatedly why he's writing. John's one of those guys who keeps telling you why he's doing what he's doing. I tell you this so that I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's on Jesus' name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you dear children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. He's addressing the congregation at every stage of their physical and spiritual life. There may be some who are young in age or who are new to faith. He addresses them. There may be some who are more advanced in years or further along in spiritual maturity. He writes to them as well. But you notice each time he writes to these various groups, he says it's because... You know something, or you have something, or you are something. You have been forgiven. You know him who's from the beginning. You know the Father. You are strong. You have overcome. Those are all words of reassurance, and he's reminding us of our identity, who you are, who you know. Who is it that you know? These are all statements about our identity. Whatever your age, however long you've been a believer... You are someone who is forgiven. You are known and you know the Father. You've overcome because Jesus has been your atoning sacrifice. Do you have that assurance? Do you have that confidence? The theme of confidence is something that we'll return to in a fortnight's time when we get to the last message in 1 John. But fellowship with the Father and the Son, enabled by the Holy Spirit, produces a confident life. And John's touching on it here. A, a, a clean life is characterised by obedience, by love for each other, by an assurance of our identity, but it's also characterised by a desire to do the will of God, not love for the world. Verse 15, let's read on. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of the Lord lives forever. In the same way that we saw that love for each other builds on our obedience to obey God's commands, these last few verses build on our assurance of our identity. Our identities have been transformed. That transformation impacts the way we interact with the world. And John provides this warning. Look at the language that he uses. It's all about worldly desires. He says the lust of the flesh, the craving for physical things, particularly things that will be beneficial to our bodies or that provide a physical enjoyment. The lust of the eyes, craving for what we can see and coveting and being filled with envy. It doesn't have to be a physical thing. We can crave success or we can crave recognition. The pride of life, our self-satisfaction, our feelings of superiority, all of those things, they pass away. A clean life doesn't pursue them. A clean life does the will of God. What is shaping our loves? Is it the world? Whoever does the will of God lives forever fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus enabled by the Holy Spirit produces in us a clean life and there's two aspects to it the first is that because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins he can be our advocate when we sin he comes alongside us 
He intercedes for us. He presents us as clean because of his sacrifice. When we sin, we have this source of cleansing. And secondly, having been cleansed, we're called not, to, not just to confess sin. We saw that last week. We are to confess sin. But more than that, we're also to live in obedience, to avoid sin, to love one another, to take that reassurance of our identity and have that impact the way we interact with our world. Not to love the things we can see or desire or to take pride in the world. If you don't have that assurance that you're clean, if you're entangled in sin, if you feel that your heart looks more like my brother and I in that mud pit and you want to be clean, then guess what? Jesus' atoning sacrifice is available and it is sufficient for you. He can be your advocate and because of him you can have fellowship with with God the Father. God's wrath is redirected away from us and toward Jesus. You can be forgiven. And when you sin, you can be forgiven again. And you can have fellowship with him. Isn't that life to the full? Don't you want that? It's available. Let's pray. Father, we are all too familiar with the sin that so easily entangles and ensnares us. Lord, like little kids, we just climb back into mud pits more often than we should. Jesus, I thank you that you are our atoning sacrifice, that God's wrath has been directed away from us, the the, um, deserving recipients, and that you've taken that in yourself. Thank you that as a result we're forgiven and that you advocate on our behalf. Lord, I pray that our lives would be transformed and characterized by obedience and by love for each other help us to understand how we can love each other not just to say it but to show it in the way that we live and interact with each other lord help us to be confident reassured by who we are in you and let us have our loves shaped by your will not by the world in which we live lord i pray for any who are here who are feeling the discomfort and the, the, the separation of sin, Lord, that they would come to know the wonderful cleansing that comes from your atoning sacrifice. Help us to share that with our community. Help us to be a community of people who live life to the full and show what it means to be forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.